1974, Dad rented a Winnebago. He rented a Winnebago motorhome to take us on Christmas vacation to visit his family in El Paso, Texas. Years later, my sister and I called it, uh, and I quote, mom and dad are trying to save their marriage road trip. We had one eight-track tape. One. That eight-track tape played early 1970s songs. We listened to these 70s songs across California, Arizona, and New Mexico, and back. I remember three songs. I've been through the desert on a horse with no name by the band America. So bye-bye, Miss American Pie. I drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Don McLean. And the song you just heard, You're So Vain, You Probably Think This Song Is About You, Don't You, Won't You, by Carly Simon. Yes, yes. It's 43 years later, and every time, and I mean every time I hear one of those songs, I think about the 1974 mom and dad trying to save their marriage road trip. For others, those songs also take you to a bad place, but for other reasons. For 713 miles from San Diego, California to El Paso, Texas, and 713 miles back, nine-year-old me and my three-year-old sister, Christy, heard mom and dad yell, cry, laugh, negotiate, and plead with each other until literally, literally, there were no more words. And my dad dropped us off in our driveway in La Mesa, California, a suburb of San Diego. After 10 years of marriage, never, ever to live in our house again. There's something about divorce, especially if you're young, that A, makes you think it's your fault, and B, it unsettles you forever. For the rest of your life, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Now, mind you, my dad was an amazing salesman and he did his best to sell us on why their divorce was a good thing, but we, even at nine and three, we weren't buying. Something just wasn't right and we knew it and he knew it and my mom knew it. And don't get me wrong, my, my dad was a good dad. Wasn't a bad dad or an absentee dad. As a matter of fact, we, we saw him all, all the time and he and, and mom got along pretty good. But when you grow up with a dad, dad in your house, there are just some things that you miss out on. For example, when I got married at 23, I, I didn't know how to, to be a husband. I never saw it. At 26, when Ruth gave birth to our first son, Levi, I remember holding him, thinking to myself, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Or what it looks like to be a dad. I remember at the age of 29, a husband, a dad, a pastor, driving my unmarried mom and my unmarried dad out to my sister's college graduation in Virginia, 20 years after their divorce, two decades later, praying the whole way there and the whole way back that they would reconcile and marry each other again. That's pretty pathetic, isn't it? But there was still that yearning for my family to be together. If there's one thing I've personally learned, it's that divorce never leaves you. You just learn to awkwardly live with it. But hey, I'm not the only one that's been affected by divorce. Divorce has affected a lot of people in this church, in our 
city, in our state, in our country, in this room. Some of you have gone through it yourself. Some of you are going through it right now. For many of you, like me, you watched your parents go through it. Maybe even your grandparents go through it. That's kind of the hot new thing. So I don't need to tell you this is a tough topic. And, and I also know that as soon as I said the word, the D word, some of you thought because you haven't been all that impacted by divorce, and that's a good thing. You thought, well, I'm, I'm kind of curious about what he has to say on this, and, and it's purely an intellectual or theological exercise for you. And that's okay. There's a place for that. But for others, just the mention of that word brings up old pain and emotion and hurt. Maybe you feel like you have a scarlet, scarlet letter D that's been imprinted or stamped on your forehead. If that's you, I want you to know that I do not approach this subject flippantly or judgmentally. I know for many of you, divorce is the most painful part of your story. And if you could have avoided it, you, you would have. Sometimes Christians, we do a poor job of communicating God's heart towards those who've gone through a divorce. And, and we even treat it like it's the unforgivable sin. And for, for that, I want to say, and I, I mean this. I mean, I really mean this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. None of us in this room are without sin. None of us. And we all stand before God equally in need of his grace. I also want to say there, there's a possibility this morning that I may offend some people. And that's okay too. I'm not perfect and I'm certainly not God and, and I could say something that's totally, totally wrong. So if you find yourself frustrated or offended or want clarification, do me a favor, stick with me until the end of the talk. Both physically, I know right now there's some of you who are tempted to, to run, to flee, just stick with me. Then emotionally, mentally, stick with me. Don't go to your phone. Don't start surfing the net. Don't go to your, your happy place or, you know, the, the restaurant you're going to eat. Just stick with me. And after the service, if you want to talk more about this, come. I'll be standing right up here as I always am. It doesn't have to be me. It could be Jim. It could be someone else. But make an appointment with me, and we'll go do coffee or lunch together, and we'll reason together. We'll do what civil adults need to do and that's come together and look at God's word and pray together and cry together and learn from one another. Well, I, I still can learn a lot about this and you may have some words for me that I need to hear that'll bring solace to my heart, even at 52. And so, as we think through this very difficult subject, what I want to do this morning is, is try to answer three questions. Number one, what are God's thoughts about divorce? I mean, you, I, I'm just a channel, right? I'm just a conduit. It's not about what I think, it's about what God thinks. Number two, is it ever okay to get a divorce? And then lastly, lastly, what about remarriage after divorce? Well, welcome back to the final message in our series on the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And I know most of you thought that last Sunday Jim finished our series, which was, by the way, a phenomenal message. Highly recommend if you weren't here to, to podcast it. Do whatever you gotta do to listen to it. But you thought he finished our series when he taught on Jesus' words about wise and foolish builders. But back in the fall, you don't remember this, and that's okay, but... We ran out of time as I was teaching Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, and we didn't get to Jesus' teaching on divorce. And some of you, not many, said, hey, you're a coward. You wimped out. We didn't wimp out. We planned this. Now, I was going to fake an injury this morning and have Jim do it, but it just didn't work. <laughs> so you got me. So to confuse you even more, please open your Bibles to Matthew 19, not Matthew chapter 5. And this is our text for today. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount is a, a condensed version of his later teaching in Matthew 19, a good rule of hermeneutics, um, the interpretation of the, the study of the Bible, the science of studying the Bible is, 
is uh, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Matthew 19 does that more fully, so we're going to spend our time here this morning. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3, some Pharisees. They came to him, Jesus, to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied. Now, this is interesting. Jesus goes back to Genesis. This, you think, what, huh? He says that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. They've commingled their souls is a literal translation. It's pretty fascinating. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Whoa, they're, they're, boy, they're hot on his trail, right? They're not going to let him off the hook. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? To which Jesus replied, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts were hard. That's interesting. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay, first question. What are God's thoughts about divorce. This passage is another one of those instances in the Gospels. It's really interesting. If you look throughout the Gospels, you see this all the time where the Pharisees are trying to spring a trap for Jesus. So they're like, you know, well, Jesus, you're saying we shouldn't get divorced. But Moses says, gotcha. Like Moses was their number one prophet. The Mo man is speaking, and he's kind of the, he's the king of the Old Testament. I mean, he's the guy who brought down the law. He, Moses said, gotcha. So what's the trap? Here's the trap. In Matthew chapter 14, we learn that Jesus' cousin, you may recall, John the Baptist, was arrested and eventually beheaded for criticizing Herod, the illicit marriage of Herod and Herodias. Herodias was Herod's brother, um, Philip's wife. And so what happened was Philip goes off on a, a business trip, maybe a trip for pleasure, I don't know, to Rome, historians tell us. His wife stays behind. Herod thinks to himself, man, I'd love to have Herodias as my wife. Philip is, is gone. While Philip is away, the king will play, and he nabs her, takes him, her on. I'm sure she was a willing um, a person in this thing as his own wife. And John the Baptist begins to call him out. This isn't allowed. You're not allowed to do this. This is sin. And so as the Pharisees approach Jesus with this question about divorce, um, what they're hoping to do is get him in trouble with Herod. They're hoping to get him killed. And so they come with this question, oh, hey, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And what they're articulating here is the first century debate between two rabbinical school, schools of thought concerning the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is the primary divorce passage uh, in the Old Testament, and it says this, if a man, Moses wrote this, marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, he can send her from his house. That phrase, some, something indecent, is the Hebrew phrase, erwat debar. You say, well, I'll never remember that. I know, but I'm going to say it a few more times because it's fun to say. That literally means something shameful or, or some matter of nakedness. And the meaning of this phrase was the crux of the debate surrounding divorce in Jesus' day. There were two primary school, schools of thought concerning the meaning of that phrase. The first school was called the conservative school. It came from this rabbi by the name of Shammai. And Shammai... Uh, he taught this. He interpreted Irwat Debar as meaning sexual unfaithfulness, by the way. That would probably be the best interpretation according to the original Hebrew. Um, or he interpreted it as meaning adultery. Again, a good interpretation. Meaning a man could divorce his wife only if he found her to be um, sexually unfaithful. But there was another school that had become prominent in that day. It was the cool school. It was the school that everyone liked. It was the school of Hillel. And Hillel... Um, was the liberal school, and they interpreted Erwat Debar as meaning anything, and I mean anything, literally anything you might not like about her could be a reason for divorce. So um, I wake up this morning, and Ruth brings my toast, and my toast is burnt. And I go, what the, that's it, out of here, next wife. 
literally, there's a Jewish writing that talks about a wife who burnt her husband's breakfast and he divorced her for that. Or it could be, again, I'm with Ruth, we're at the farmer's market uh, when it's a little bit warmer, we're walking around and I see some gal and I go, man, I think that gal selling um, peaches over there would be a better wife. See you, Ruth, I'm marrying peach lady. That would be allowed in the school of Hillel. Now the Pharisees come to Jesus asking, what school of thought about divorce do you believe in? Gotcha! Here we go! Are you team Shammai? Because if you are, it's going to be fun. Are you team Hillel? I hope not, because we're all team Hillel, and that's okay. Typical Jesus, right? He responds, but he takes the conversation a different direction. He takes it the right direction. Verse four, haven't you read? He replied, it's interesting. He says these to to the Pharisees, to the rabbis. He knows they've read this. That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, this is really important, um, what God has joined together. This is a, a God issue. Well, no, no, the, the judge, it's not the judge. Well, my pat, not your pastor. God brings a man and a woman, a husband and wife together. God is in the mix. Therefore, what God has joined together, let, let no one separate. Do me a favor, please write this down. I'll put it on the screen for you. The Pharisees were preoccupied with grounds for divorce, but Jesus was, was preoccupied with the covenant of marriage. The Pharisees are always looking for loopholes, and that happens to us, right? We get our backs up against the wall, and we know what the word of God says, but we start looking for loopholes. And Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. The issue isn't technicalities. The issue is covenantal love. The issue is God brings together a man and a wife. The issue is, is really about marriage and how you stay in it. And what Jesus is doing here is showing them that he is more concerned about validating the institution of marriage than addressing their questions about divorce. And so he points them back to creation. And he says, let's look at God's original intention for human flourishing. And, and there we see that God's intention for marriage was that it would be a lifelong covenant that unites two people together uh, and makes them one. And this happens in, in, in the sexual union between um, the man and the woman, but it's, it's more than that. It, it, it happens spiritually and emotionally when their, their souls are commingled together in mutual commitment. Like this is a really big deal. The King James Version translates the word united, most of us know it this way, um, as cleave. A husband will leave his father and, and mother and cleave unto his wife. And this should give us the sense of two things being glued together or fastened together that can't be separated. This is covenant language. And what Jesus is emphasizing here is the difference between a, this is really important, a covenant relationship and a consumer relationship. Let's, let's talk a little bit about a consumer relationship. I want to define it for you. I didn't put the definition on the screen, so if you're taking notes, I'll go slow. But a consumer relationship is one where you figure out what you need and who best or what best can meet your needs. And as long as they're doing that, the relationship remains intact. I have a consumer relationship with Gusano's Pizzeria. I like their pizza, but I go there primarily because it's near my house. And not only that, I can get regular crust. Are you ready for it? Wait for it. Or deep dish. Chicago style. However, if I find a pizza place that's more convenient or has better prices or better pizza, I will temporarily break off my relationship with Gasanos for, let's say, um, hello, Mellow Mushroom. Oh, Wood, uh, Woodstone, where have you been all my life? That's a consumer relationship. See, from the time we wake up in our culture, from the time we go to bed, we're trained to be consumers. Right? And you say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. No, only unless it bleeds over into the covenantial things of God. 
so what's a covenant relationship? Well, let me describe that. I'll go slow. Um, a covenant relationship is an agreement where two parties, you ready? Lay down their own rights for the sake of the other person. The rights and needs of the other person become the main priority. It's, it's not me-centric, it's you-centric. I'll make it real personal. It's not Lee-centric, it's Ruth-centric. This is like, and I, I, want, I want you to work with me here, this is really important, because there's a part of us that goes, I, I can't do this, or this is hard, or you don't know. And I would just say this, what kind of relationship do you have with your, if you have, with your kids? <laughs> Uh-oh. The relationship that most, and there's some horrible parents out there, but there's more good parents than bad. The relationship with most parents that they have with their kids is this. Parents will put up with an unbelievable amount of frustration. Can I get an amen? And rejection and suffering for the sake of their kids. Why? Because parents love their kids. This love is not based on their performance, but it's based on sacrificial, covenantal commitments. I can't have a consumer relationship with my children. I don't go to them and say, you know, Levi, Noah, this is just not working out. It's not you. It's, it's me. But hey, I've been hanging out with the neighbor's kids, and I'm going to trade you in for them. <laughs> and Jesus is telling us that that's what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant relationship, not a consumer relationship. Okay, so the question is, what does God think about divorce? The answer is, Jesus is more interested in val validating marriage than he is in talking about reasons for divorce than he is about looking for loopholes for why we can divorce. His plan, his preference, and his purpose are always a lifelong covenantal commitment between spouses. That is Jesus' ultimate plan and design. Now, gets a little more difficult. With that being said, Jesus does seem to give us some scenarios where divorce may be, and this is really important that we understand this, I'll say it a lot, divorce may be permitted, but not required. So question number two this morning. This is what you've been waiting for, right? Is it ever okay to get a divorce? Verse seven, why then they asked, did Moses command that a man, a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? To which Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. In verse 7, the Pharisees then make this claim. It's interesting what... Um, People will do in the midst of an argument how we turn a word or a phrase and they're like, hey, Jesus, Moses commanded it. Did he command it? Jesus corrects them and he reminds them, no, 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 Moses didn't command it. He commanded it, he allowed it. And why did he allow it? Because your hearts are hard. It's a you issue, not a Moses issue, not a God issue, right? Not your spouse, it's a you issue. There may be situations where it's permissible, but it's never required. Again, God's preference is always for repentance, humility, and reconciliation. Hey, by the way, repentance and humility and reconciliation, they're a picture of the gospel. God is like, I want you to introduce the gospel into the brokenness of your marriage. Just like King Jesus introduced the gospel into the brokenness of your lives. And we get selfish, don't we? We're like, yes, Jesus, give me the gospel. And we look at our spouse and we're like, no gospel for you. Interesting. To our kids, gospel. To our spouse, not so much. But unfortunately, um, that doesn't always happen, right? 
Sometimes there are things that happen in the course of a marriage that harden hearts so much that it, it, it effectively, I'm going to use this phrase a little bit, don't be put off by it, but it effectively kills the covenant. And Jesus tells us one of those things is sexual immorality. The Greek word, as many of you know, this is pornea. And pornea is any sexual activity outside of the covenantal union between a husband and a, a wife. And in this context, it refers to adultery. And what Jesus seems to be saying is that the marriage covenant is so sacred that when someone unites themselves sexually to another person who is not their spouse, it has a way of ripping that one flesh covenant apart and killing it. Now, hold on. It doesn't always have to kill it. It doesn't. There's many marriages, even in this room, of people who've experienced this kind of ripping, adultery in their marriages, and God has restored them. It doesn't have to. But for some, the hurt, the ripping is way too deep that they can't get over it. And so Jesus says adultery is one exception where divorce is permitted but not required. You say, well, Lee, hold on. That's it? No, no, no. There's, there's other exceptions. The Apostle Paul gives us another one, and we're going to build towards it. He's making an argument. Let's jump into the argument with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 13, he says, And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he's willing to live with her, underline this, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are, are holy. What is he saying? Well, first of all, um, apparently, and we know this from history, from the book of Acts, as well as just history, historians, revival was going on in Corinth. And the church there was growing and blowing and people were coming to know Jesus and, and sometimes whole families would come to know Jesus, but often it would just be the husband or be, just be the wife. And so one spouse had become a believer and, and the other didn't. And what Paul is saying is that even in that situation, divorce is not permissible, right? Because it's kind of a conversation killer, right? All of a sudden you love Jesus, your spouse doesn't. What do you talk about? He didn't want to go to church. <laughs> he didn't want to pray with the kids. He didn't want to talk about a missional life for King Jesus. He didn't want to Matthew 28 proclaim the gospel to the end. He, huh? And so you're bummed. And part of you goes, I need a new one. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't get divorced. Why? This is really good. Because your covenantal faithfulness has the opportunity to sanctify your spouse and your children. You say, what does that mean? You have the opportunity to be Jesus in your house now, to live out the ethos of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, to be salt, to be light. And Lord willing, through your not perfect testimony, but your new testimony, wrapped in Jesus, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, Lord willing, your husband will see that and go, I want that. And your kids will go, I want that. So Paul says, stay there. Stay there. However, we're building. Paul goes on to say that if the unbelieving spouse separates or abandons the believing spouse, they are no longer bound. Verse 15, 1 Corinthians 7, really important. But if the unbeliever leaves, I mean, you've done everything you can. He says, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. And what he's saying is this, the action of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse severs the covenant. It kills the covenant, effectively killing the marriage. And so abandonment by an unbelieving spouse is another exception where the New Testament allows but does not require divorce. There are some people, I know them, their, spouse has, their unbelieving spouse has left them and they said, I'm holding out. I'm waiting. I'm praying. This is it for me. That's cool too. Now you might be thinking, wait a second. Okay, adultery, abandonment. Um, but what if, what if one of the spouses is abusive? Physically abusive, 
and maybe even involved in some kind of illegal activity. Lee, what, what, what do we do then? I mean, like the whole family, the, the spouse, maybe if there's kids involved, the kids are, are at risk. And, and I would say this, these are the types of difficult pastoral questions that keep us up at night, right? Because from my opinion, I, I don't see the New Testament giving us complete clarity on this, a, a clear direction. But I would definitely say this. The first thing you have to do is get yourself and the kids out of the house. Whatever it takes, don't mess around. Never stay in an abusive situation that puts you or your children at, at risk. Now, now I say what I'm about to say very cautiously. There are some Bible scholars who say that the heart of what Paul and Jesus are teaching in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 may allow, and there's debate here, for a divorce when a spouse has effectively killed the covenant by getting to a place where it's impossible to live with them because of what they have done, the abuse. Now, this does not mean, and I want to put this on the screen, I want to clarify here. This does not mean um, that these reasons are allowed. Hey, we've just grown apart. Or, you know, at first, all those little funny habits I thought were cute and quirky, now they're just annoying. Divorce, please. Or seven years in, hey, he was a real hunk when we got married. Now he's just fat. <laughs> Didn't anticipate fat. Divorce, please. Just not attracted to him anymore. Hey, we got married young. Oh, I didn't know what I was doing. Those are what? Consumer statements. And you've been trained to think that way, but you have the spirit of God living inside of you now, so you think differently. You don't think consumer thoughts when it comes to the covenantal issues of God. Right? This is talking about extreme covenant-killing action through ongoing forms of abuse or illegal activity, and I say this cautiously for fear of opening Pandora's box. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't look for loopholes. Look for ways to stay in covenantal marriage because the God of the universe has brought you together. In our culture, as in Jesus' time, we don't need more reasons to get divorced. We need more reasons to stay married. And very often people look for any and every opportunity to end their marriage. In fact, that's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do. And so this is something that should be discerned under close advisement from, I would say, Christian counselors or the leadership of your church. Certainly a space for separation, even a long separation, may be in order to give your spouse the space to repent and change. Had a woman come up to me in between services she said, my husband and I have been married for 31 years. We don't believe in divorce. We don't want to get divorced. But we need a time of separation to work on our marriage. And here are the steps that we're taking. Praise God. Praise God. So the question is, is divorce ever okay? The answer is yes. Under certain circumstances where the covenant has been killed through adultery, Abandonment, and in some cases, abuse. But the main point, again, is that Jesus is more concerned about validating marriage than addressing questions about divorce. Pastor, scholar, theologian, Timothy Keller, in his book on the meaning of marriage, says this. It's a great quote. He says, divorce should be viewed as something as radical as amputating an arm or a leg. There are certainly times when amputation is necessary for survival, but it should only be viewed as the final option. You don't go to the doctor for um, a cut on your finger that needs a few stitches and get your finger cut off, right? <laughs> Unless gangrene has set in it, you may die. Then you do it. And so this is a decision that we, sh we should never, ever take lightly. Last question. What about remarriage after a divorce? This is a hotly debated issue among scholars. I don't have time to get into all the nuances of the arguments, but I'll give you my view. My view is that when a marriage has ended, due to a legitimate exception, we talked about those, 
Adultery, abandonment, abuse. Remarriage is permissible. The Greek grammar in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 seems to lean in this direction as well as that phrase is not bound from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15. Kevin DeYoung, who I respect, he also is a pastor and author, he says this, and I quote, all scholars on every side of the divorce and remarriage debate agree that it was a given for first century Jews that remarriage was a valid opinion after a valid divorce. To be granted a legal separation meant de facto that you were no longer bound to anyone and thus free to remarry. No one in Jesus' audience was thinking that remarriage wouldn't be an option. Now this also means where the divorce was not permissible, any subsequent remarriage to someone other than the original spouse results in adultery. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. And the implication is there in an unbiblical way. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. This is Paul quoting the teaching of Jesus from Matthew. And the principle here is that if you are in a divorce that ends illegitimately, faithfulness to God means remaining unmarried or seeking reconciliation with your spouse. Okay. Let me finish with four charges. Okay. I want to address four groups this morning. I want to end on a real practical note. The first group I want to address, it's not everyone in this room, but it's some of you, it was me for many years, is to those who've come from divorce. Let me just say, you are not destined to be divorced or to get divorced. Just because your mom and dad did, it doesn't mean it's your journey. Now for some in this room, you come from divorce, you don't even think about it's not an issue, but for others, and I was one of those people, you tend to think because mom and dad got divorced, Whew, that's my journey. That's, I mean, they did it, so I, I, I have to do it. I, I have no choice but to get divorced, or at least I'm pretty sure that's in my future. Quick joke. We need a joke right now, don't we? <laughs> You're like, please take your foot off the gas. But it's a meaningful joke. You ready? Don't answer if you know. Why can't Jesus work in a jewelry store? Because he breaks every chain. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. That's what Jesus did with my parents' divorce story as it related to my life. And that's what he wants to do in, in your life. Let me give you an example. On the morning of my 11th anniversary, I woke up, and this isn't me. As I get older, I'm more this way, but it wasn't me then especially. I woke up and I wept. Why? Because my parents got divorced after 10 years of marriage. And Jesus was saying to me, you are not your mom and dad. You don't have to get divorced after 10 years of marriage. I have broken that chain. You know how many years, Ruth, and I have been married now? 29 years. Can a brother get a hallelujah? That chain has been broken. The world, the flesh, and the devil have been whispering, yelling to me constantly, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. That 11th year, Jesus said, you did it, you did it through me, I broke the chain. I broke it. That does not have to be visited to you or your generations. To those who are single, let me encourage you. Serve God in your singleness. To hurry and rush out to find someone is a mistake that will generally lead to heartache. Remember, the single you will become the married you. While you are single, cultivate your walk with Jesus. Serve the Lord with gladness, not as a second-class citizen. Please hear this. Just because you're single, you're not other. You're not abnormal. You're not even different. You're just single. That's okay. Paul even says this, it's better to be single. You got more time to do the stuff that matters for the kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. 
There's nothing wrong with that at all. But I would encourage you, guard your purity. Do not use your singleness to engage in reckless behavior where you use other people for pleasure without commitment. That behavior just leaves scars on both you and the other person. Don't do that. You're married to King Jesus. And when you think, Lord willing, you have found the right person, hey, write this down. I will vet that person thoroughly. Thoroughly. Next to salvation, this is the most important decision in your life. Bring wise counselor, counselors into your decision-making process. Before you get engaged, ask me for the book. I'll give it to you for free. People are coming up in between services. The book is by Norm Wright. It's called 101 Questions to Ask Before You Are Engaged. I've got plenty of them. I replenish constantly. Come up and I'll give you a copy. I don't have them with me right now. I should have brought it, but come by the office. I'll give it to you. When you get engaged, go to our pre-marriage class where we will assign you a mentor couple who will walk with you through in this process or sign up with the Joshua Center or do both. Often our couples do. Do whatever you have to do to get the best premarital counseling ever. Do not, I repeat, do not hurry through this process. To those who are married, commit yourself to be a man of God or a woman of God in your marriage. Keep working hard at your marriage. Over the course of time, it is easy to take your spouse for granted. It's easy to see the things that, that annoy you and forget the things that you once treasured. It's easy to be distracted. Don't let that happen. Maybe you're on your, your second or third or fourth marriage. I would just say this to you lovingly. Stop the generational sin right now. You don't have to get divorced. Don't listen to the statistics. Make your second or your third or your fourth marriage your last. Unless your spouse dies, make it your last marriage. Please hear this. To have a, a strong marriage requires keeping our focus on the Lord. Superficial Christianity will lead to superficial marriages. Get rid of superficiality. Get Christ into the reality of your life and watch what happens to your marriage. You say, well, how do I do that? Get on your knees and pray that God would give you a true love for him and a true love for your spouse. Get into his word and let him speak. Pray together, serve together, and make sure you're investing in, in younger couples and, and investing in singles who need to see what good marriages look like. I'm always amazed. I get these couples in my office who know and love Jesus, and they're like, yeah, we're just giving up. I'm like, are you praying together? No. Are you in God's word? No. Are you serving together? No. What's your community look like? We've kind of stepped out of community. I'm like, man, you are, you're in a scary place. Lastly, to those who've been divorced, let me say it again, I ache with you. Your marriage may have failed, but God has not rejected you. He loves you as much as he ever has. His desire for you is healing and hope and restoration and that you, the latter days, will be better than the former. Again, if we, the church, have added to your pain in any way, please forgive us. We want to help you, not beat you up. We want to help you put aside the bitterness and the resentment and the anger and the brokenness. One day Jesus was teaching in the temple courts and the Pharisees, they, they brought in a, a woman who had been caught in adultery and they made her stand in front of the entire group. What is it about religious institutions and shame? <laughs> Just stand in your shame. Let's soak your shame in for a little bit. And they had another gotcha moment with Jesus. They said, hey, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. We caught her. She's not denying it. Moses, oh, here we go again. Moses teaches that she should be put to death. She should be stoned. What do you say? Jesus stoops down in the dirt and takes his finger, the Bible tells us, and he begins to, to draw or write. When the Pharisees kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said these words, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. 
And John says that the Pharisees began to go away until only the woman was left standing there, just she and Jesus. Like, you know, that's what it always is. It's just you and Jesus. It's not you, Jesus, and Lee, or you, Jesus, and Jim, or you, Jesus, and a crowd of people. It's just you and Jesus. Most likely, he was probably, which I love this, he was probably writing their names and their sins, and they went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. It's moments like that. Don't you wish you could be Jesus for five minutes? Just Jesus and her. And he said to her, these words, write them down. I don't condemn you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a condemnable offense, Jesus. This is the moment for condemnation right now. She committed adultery. She slept with another man who was not her husband. I don't condemn you. I'm not going to tell you that it's okay because it's not. As a matter of fact, stop doing that. It's not right. It's not right. But I'm not mad at you. I don't condemn you. Please hear this. This ought to be the response of the church to those who have been through a divorce because quite frankly, the, the divorce stand in the midst of the rest of us adulterers. You say, whoa, 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 I'm not an adulterer. Maybe you're not. But earlier in Matthew chapter five, remember what Jesus said? He said, if we even look upon a person with lust, we've, we've done what? We've committed adultery. There is no room for pride or unbiblical judgment in the church. We are all sinners saved by God's glorious grace. Now, divorce is not a part of God's intention or design. Jesus called it sin, but hey, sometimes it happens. And when it does, we need to remember Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. God is a grace, uh, God, God is a, a, a God of grace and mercy. And we need to remember that all things work to good for those who love him and live according to his purposes. Not some things, not just the good things, but all things, including our brokenness. He uses our brokenness to redeem and shape and make us more like him. says to us, I don't condemn you. If you've been divorced here this morning, we don't condemn you. Now there's residue after a talk like this, right? There is, this is hard. I know it's hard. I know. So the best that we can, we want to offer resources. And so if you look, and I'm going to have Chad stand. Chad, will you stand? Angela's at home with a sick Sick baby today, but Chad Emhoff's back there to my right with Celebrate Recovery. And um, they love and minister this ministry to divorced people. Here's what's, uh, I don't even want to use the word really cool, it's just a reality of, of life and who we are as a church and God's grace. But both Chad and Angela, who lead this ministry, have been divorced. They've got a story. And out of the midst of that pain and sorrow and heartache, God has redeemed them. And the, the, the latter is much better than the former. Also, just shameless plug, this is Celebrate Recovery's New Heights fifth year anniversary today for Celebrate Recovery. Hallelujah. You can clap. Tonight, I, I say this, Chad, I don't know, but can we invite everyone? That's a lot of food. He says invite everyone. And by the way, the food's amazing. 5.30, up where the students meet. And our very own Betsy Baker, who has left us to live in Michigan, which makes me sad, she's coming back to share her testimony. God's grace and redemption is an amazing testimony. You don't want to miss it. That's one resource. Here's another resource off to my left. I'd like James and Nicola to stand. As many of you know already, we're blessed to have James and Nicola. James is our marriage and family life pastor. He also works for the Joshua Center. And he's back there as a representative of the Joshua Center. You can go back and get information. As Jim has said many times, I'll say again, we'll pay for the first three or four sessions of your counseling. We'll do whatever it takes. And they deal with people who struggle with divorce. Here's another interesting thing about God's grace and mercy. James also has been divorced. And the latter is better than the former. The latter is better than the former. God's doing a work. 
You say, what else do you got? Well, we have something called divorce care. And we're starting a new group session in late spring. You can contact June Lawrence for divorce care. Well, what else? You always have the staff. We're accessible no matter what. But as many of you know, every Sunday we have what we call our ministry time. It's a little different, especially for visitors. We take communion and hopefully together, uh, you know, as far as in groups, as people go to the tables. Um, but we also have prayer warriors up here who want to pray. I want our prayer warriors to come up right now. And prayer warriors is just a fancy term for people who want to pray, right? So come on up. And this is another line of defense or a line of help for those who are hurting. I'll be standing up here. Ruth and I will be standing up here. Many others. And they just want to pray into you and love you and hold you. I just, one gal, last service, I just held. And she wept and we prayed. That's it. That's it. A lot of hurt, a lot of pain. A lot of shame. Just prayed into God's blessing her and against the lies of the devil. I'm going to pray for you right now and then we're going to finish with worship and Josh is, Josh is going to lead us through communion. I couldn't think of a better opportunity right now, for, especially for spouses. Ruth and I are going to do it. When you take communion together, recommit your marriage to King Jesus. Say, hey, maybe we haven't been doing what we should. Maybe we've been struggling. Maybe the devil's got into our plans. Maybe the, the world and the flesh have been messing us up. We're just going to recommit. This is the stuff of eternity. This is the stuff of generations. This is the stuff that changes cultures. We're going to recommit. We're taking this seriously. We're not going to be consumers anymore. We're tapping into God's covenantial plan for our marriage. Jesus, you're so good. You're so good. Like the song we sang, you're just so good. I couldn't just stop weeping and rejoicing over your goodness and your grace and your mercy in our lives. And I pray right now for every person in this room who has been impacted by divorce. God, I pray that they experience your grace and mercy in a significant and powerful way. And they realize that you want for them in the future to be ministers of reconciliation and grace and mercy, not to live in the past. Bring comfort. I know there's hurting people. Dry their tears. Hold them. Whisper how much you love them. Sons and daughters. We ask all this in Jesus' name.